Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. The Monteverdi Choir singing Gardner's Pilgrimage to Santiago, opening our programme, where we've three stories for you tonight inspired by faith and pilgrimage from as far away as Haiti to closer to home in Knock. Later in the programme, we'll hear from Irish filmmaker Campbell Miller about his award-winning docudrama Hope, Our Lady of Knock, which was recently named the best special or documentary in the 2020 Gabriel Awards. Are you not supposed to be locking up the church tonight, Margaret? Oh yes, it completely went out of my head. Be quick, Margaret, you will get soaked. I know, it hasn't stopped all week. Later, Dr Louise Nugent, archaeologist, will share stories from her new book, Journeys of Faith, from intrepid travellers crossing continents to pilgrims plotting less perilous paths in medieval Ireland. But first... Little Moses gazes atop the ice cream and sees a big hat. It is green and brown and orange and has an image of a deer with antlers on the front. That is a very big hat, he says. Little Moses, the man says, if you see this hat, you must run. Do you understand? Like the flash? Moses asks. Faster, the man says. An excerpt there from the audiobook Human Touch, a serialised story of hope during the COVID-19 pandemic, the latest project of author, musician and broadcaster Mitch Album. His books have sold over 39 million copies worldwide, including Tuesdays with Maury, The Five People You Meet in Heaven and his latest book, Human Touch, which has so far raised over half a million dollars for COVID-19 relief. Mitch Album joins me now from his home in Detroit. Mitch, welcome to The Leap of Faith. Let's start with the story of Little Moses and your book, Human Touch. Well, uh, so it's kind of part of a large picture. I, you know, live in the city of Detroit. We were very hard hit by COVID-19. You know, after New York and New Jersey, we were the next hardest hit, but we're much smaller than them. So I knew I needed to do something for my community. I'm very involved with it here. So I decided, well, the best thing I could offer to try to raise money is maybe write a book essentially for free, give it away on the internet week at a time and see if people would make donations to help us in the city. And so that's what Human Touch is. It's a fictional story about a, a, a small town, not unlike the town I'm talking to you from right now in the state of Michigan and one street corner on that, in that town where there are four houses and four families in those houses and how they interact and change throughout the course of how this virus hits them. However, you asked about Little Moses. So the four families make perfect sense in sort of a literary thing. You have a doctor, and obviously that's going to be important. You have a pastor. I think that's important in these times. You have a Chinese-American couple. That's important because they were getting a lot of blame early on in this thing. And you have a business owner. That all makes sense in the landscape. And then all of a sudden you have this eight-year-old Haitian boy who makes no sense in that landscape, except that I operate an orphanage in Haiti. I have since the earthquake of 2010. I'm there every month of my life. And we have 52 children that we raise there. And one of them, an eight-year-old boy, who happened to have been left to die when he was just a couple weeks old as an infant under a tree, and somebody found him and eventually brought him to us, he was up here getting some therapy uh, when all the COVID-19 stuff hit. And as a result, he has been here ever since. And he has been such a joy for our existence under COVID-19. He has been all the difference in the world, having a, a buoyant, joyous, happy eight-year-old boy under this otherwise cloudy circumstance that I felt the need to somehow work that presence 
into the story. And so little Knox, that's his real name, became little Moses in human touch. So that's the long answer to your short question. And lovely too, that Knox actually features in the audio version of the book. Yeah, uh, so I have, uh, we give it away for free. You can read it, you can download it and, and, and read it, or you can download the audio of it because audible.com uh, made a very nice gesture to us. And, and so you can go there, you can go to humantouchstory.com and just get it for free, either, either version. So here I am recording all these different voices of all those different people, a doctor and a pastor and females and knows it. And comes an eight-year-old Haitian boy, and I'm thinking, why do I have to do that? I've got an eight-year-old Haitian boy right here. And it turns out he's quite a good little actor. And so after the first week, the second week, we just have done it, and he's done all eight weeks now. And he turns out to sort of be the hero of the whole, um, of the whole story. And so he's gained a little bit of a cult following as a result of this. Mitch, when you look across uh, the many books that you've written, and I'm thinking back you know, to, 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 to some of them that... There seems to be a theme I'm looking for, and that is that you seem to have been touched by a good mentor. There's somebody somewhere in your formation had an impact on you. Is that fair? Yeah. Yes, very fair. Um, and I think that those mentors, uh, whatever form they took, have shaped my life. Uh, it started 25 years ago with uh, an old professor of mine named Maury Schwartz. Uh, and I wrote the book Tuesdays with Maury about. He was dying from motor neuron disease. And I went to visit him every Tuesday, uh, all the Tuesdays he had left in his life. And he basically taught me, this is what matters in life when you really realize you're going to die. And most people don't ever really realize they're going to die until it's too late and they're almost gone. And that was an invaluable, precious experience for me that I, I wrote a book to pay his medical bills. Tuesdays with Maury, it wasn't supposed to be a big book or anything. We we're just trying to pay his bills. And it took off and became, you know, something I never could have imagined, including there in Ireland and, and other places around the world. And so I've kind of lived with his lessons. And then wherever I go, people talk to me about his lessons. And so that the class kind of continues for me. Then I wrote a book in 2009 called Have a Little Faith, uh, 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 another true account of an old rabbi who asked me to do his eulogy for him uh, and a young African-American pastor who I became friendly with who had a church here in Detroit that was so poor it had a hole in its roof and the snow would actually come in through the hole and snow on the congregation when they were trying to uh, pray. And I learned a lot from both of those men, particularly when it has to come to faith. And then about 10 years later, I wrote a book called Finding Chica, which is my most recent one. And that was about one of our kids from Haiti, a five-year-old girl named Chica, who had survived the earthquake when she was three days old and lived through it. And then when she was five, uh, developed a brain tumor. And we brought her here and she became our daughter. And for two years, we traveled around the world trying to find a cure. And during that time, she became a mentor to me of sorts because even though I'm much older, um, she taught me the precious value of children in this world and, and, and the purpose that they really give your life. And so you're very accurate in saying that my writing, as well as my life itself, has been uh, significantly affected by mentors in all shapes and sizes and ages. That also that implies that you might mentor other people, or at least you might share that around. Is that through your writing? 
Uh, it's a little haughty to say it's through my writing. Uh, you know, I, I, if someone is influenced that way, I'm happy, but I'm not trying to be anybody's teacher through my writing. I'm rather trying to share what I have learned um, and, and say, if, if it works for you too, good, you know, but I, I try never to lecture in my writing or, or, you know, wag a finger and say, this is wrong and this is right. I do try to be a mentor for our 52 kids in Haiti. You know, that's a lot of, it's a big family and they look up to me and I try to live up to that. Uh, but I never tell them that they have to call me dad or father or anything like that. It's, it's always Mr. Mitch. And that's who I've kind of become in my second act of life. You know, I'm Mr. Mitch to a bunch of kids. What keeps Mr. Mitch going? Is faith a role for you? Sure. Faith and hope. Um, more and more, it seems, hope is a, is a precious commodity, uh, especially with what's going on here now in America and COVID-19 and all the other things that are going on. If you don't somehow believe that the future can be brighter, that there are better days ahead, that there are better angels of our nature, um, you'd be a little lost. And, uh, you know, someone, a critic, I guess, one time was writing something about me that was, you know, they're trying to sort of knock me and uh, poke fun at me by my writing. And they called me the king of hope. But they did it in a derogatory fashion. And I, I say, what a mantle that would be, you know, I, I'm not deserving of it, but I'd be proud to wear it. Uh, and, and that's how I kind of look at life, you know, no matter how many bad things I've seen, and I've seen a lot, um, and I've witnessed a lot of death and I've witnessed a lot of people close to me who have passed, but I still have an ability to be hopeful about things. And I try to share that in my writing and in my life, you know, and I do think there'll be change here in America as a result of what happened with George Floyd. And I hope the police departments all across the country adopt new sets of standards that these chokeholds are just taken out of existence. They, that should have happened a long time ago, but maybe something like this finally does. So, you know, I, I just choose to focus on the, the positive things that, that can happen going forward. Are you distracted or is there a risk of being distracted by what's happening politically now in the United States? I, I think the anger and the protest that you're seeing in, the, in, in America has been long in coming. And then there's sort of a perfect storm of, you know, everybody's been locked up for all this time. For two, three months, nobody's been able to go out. Uh, suddenly it's summertime. Uh, and then you have this terrible, terrible video that that would make any human being wince and, 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 and want to do something. And all that comes together. And there are just people pouring out into the streets and some of them are there on principle and some of them are there for years of oppression. And some of them are just there because they just want to do something. <laughs> they just want to be outside. And, and you, so it, it, it presents, I think, to the outside world as, a massive thing when really I think it's a confluence of a lot of different things going on. And I, you know, I'm hoping for the calmer angels of our nature to, to take over over time. Mitch Album, thank you for joining us on the program tonight. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Next this evening and closer to home, pilgrimage has long held a special place in the hearts of Irish people. In medieval times, it was one of the most popular forms of personal devotion. Just as the purposes for making pilgrimages differ, so too did the destinations from holy wells to churches and graves, as well as overseas places such as Santiago de Compostela and even the Holy Land. Dr. Louise Nugent is an archaeologist and author. Her book, Journeys of Faith, Stories of Pilgrimage from Medieval Ireland, 
has just been published by Columba Books, and she joins me now from our home. Louise, welcome to The Leap of Faith. Your book is a fantastic read and becomes an even more fantastic read with the stories from medieval times of people's motivations to go on pilgrimage. What were those motivations? Well, there were many motivations that um, inspired people to go on pilgrimage. Some people were inspired to connect with with God. So places like Jerusalem would have been a, a big draw because people felt that by going there, they were walking in the footsteps of Christ. So it was um, a way of them reaffirming their faith. Others would go on pilgrimage for a search for, for cures and healing um, for disease. People went on pilgrimage. Sometimes it was imposed on them as a penance. Um, and uh, sometimes even as a, as a punishment for, for serious crimes. Some people went on pilgrimage to escape the mundane, to, to explore, to see the world. Um, and people also went on pilgrimage as a means of getting indulgences to take time off um, the, the time that they would spend in purgatory. And sometimes it was a combination of reasons. It didn't need to be just one. Now, there may be generations who are aware of the idea of either hopping on an airplane when we used to be able to do that and fly (laughs) off to somewhere to do a a visit to the Holy Land or otherwise. But we're talking about the 1200s, 1300s. There weren't travel agents. How did people actually organize themselves from, say, somewhere in the middle of Ireland to the Holy Land? That's a really good question. Um, I think people would would have used word of mouth. So if they would have thought out other people who would have made a similar journey. Um, There were also um, travel itineraries that were available as well. Um, So now these would have really been sometimes difficult to come by because they, you would have needed money. You also would have needed to read to be able to use them. But I think a lot of it would have been word of mouth. What did it cost? It's, it's difficult to say, and the cost would have, would have changed at different points in time, but for somebody from Ireland to get to Jerusalem, it would have been extremely expensive. You would have needed to get a boat from Ireland across to Wales. You would have traveled through Wales, through England, through London, onto Dover, gotten another boat across to, to mainland Europe, Traveled through Europe, there are different options available and, and depending on whether there was war ongoing, different routes would have been taken. You would have traveled on to Italy um, and you would have gotten a boat from somewhere like Venice all the way down to Egypt or maybe sailed directly towards the Holy Land um, and then traveled another land journey to reach there. So it was expensive. You needed money with you. Um, so, so really, I think a lot of the longer distance pilgrimages, for the most part, would have been undertaken by the wealthy. And you see that reflected in the historical sources. It's kings, um, the aristocracy, pretty much from, from that period. Now, with all of the people heading out of Ireland to these various places, was the return traffic, were there sites in Ireland that brought people from far away? So Ireland is really at the periphery of Europe and it's generally accepted that Ireland and places like Scotland, you would not have seen the great numbers of foreign pilgrims arriving as you would say to a shrine like Canterbury or Santiago. But we had a number of sites here, most particularly Loch Derg, um, St. Patrick's Purgatory, which would have um, attracted pilgrims from outside of Ireland. We have accounts of pilgrims from Hungary, um, Catalonia, Switzerland, England, Germany, all traveling there to experience um, 
the cave on in St. Patrick's Purgatory, there was a cave which people believed that if they entered the cave, that they would experience the torments of purgatory. And when you emerge from the cave, all of your sins would have been wiped clean. So there's a significant amount of um, literary accounts of these foreign pilgrims coming to St. Patrick's Purgatory. And it's interesting in that they're all men and they're all aristocrats. So um, again, it, it, it kind of shows that if you're traveling long distances, money is an issue and the rich tend to be recorded. I think it's fair enough to say that uh, you can throw a stone in Ireland, which is probably not a great idea anyway, but you'll hit yeah. a holy well or you'll hit you something. Will. That, yeah. you will. Where does that come from? There, it's really difficult to say. Holy wells seem to date back, some of them date back as far as prehistory. There seems to have been a particular connection with water and certain places with water were seen as holy. Certainly when um, Christianity arrived in Ireland, a number of holy wells were, of, of holy water sources, wells were, were Christianized and they became associated with saints. Um, and new wells would have come into being throughout the centuries. I mean, for example, Father Moore's well in Kildare, which is a very popular pilgrim place, it, it dates to the 19th century, it's associated with an Irish priest. So, so a lot of the Irish wells are, are of different dates, but certainly some of them date back to prehistory. Uh, and most parishes in Ireland will have at least one, if not two wells. Maybe some of them are no longer visited, but they certainly were in the past. Now, the focus of your work and, and the book is, is from medieval Ireland, um, and, and that seems to have been the period where all of this was put in place. Have you any idea why it's still so popular and the concept of pilgrimage is still so popular in 2020? It's, it certainly is. I think there's, there's a lot of different types of pilgrimage happening now in Ireland. Um, there's still very much the traditional pilgrimage of, of community pilgrimage to Holy Wells um, on pattern days and special days. And you see each year the thousands of people who climb Crow Patrick. So there's still um, a connection. And I think in some ways pilgrimage, particularly on the Saints Feast Day, where you have large groups of people from their community coming together, it reinforces community bonds. And there's also a tradition that people are following in the footsteps of their parents and their grandparents and their great grandparents. And then we have all of these new spiritual more of a spiritual pilgrimage is taking place where so I think it's the journey it's 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 the leaving behind the everyday life and going off I think walking to a particular place it, it can you know it, it clears people's minds and it allows them connect with themselves and and that aspect that journey that that travel I think it's it, it's as appealing to people today as it was in the past we heard of the programme a couple of weeks ago where people are taking the opportunity now of, for example, completing Lochderg, but remotely rather than necessarily yes. going and visiting. Well, the, the book, as I said, is, is a great read in that the, you find yourself suddenly in the minutiae of, of somebody's individual journey and the experience they had. For you, when you were putting it together, was there a, 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 were there a couple of moments which, for the want of a better word, were wow, or that you might have even shared before the book was even published? Come here till I tell you something really interesting <laughs> I found out. Well, for me, I'm really interested in people's stories. And I suppose one of the most interesting stories for me was the story of Henry McNichol, who murdered his son and was sent on this pilgrimage to 18 or 19 pilgrim sites around Ireland. And it was just fascinated me. Like I, I wondered, 
what, why had he killed his son? Where was he going? Why, why had they chosen these sites that he was sent there? And then when he completed his pilgrimage, how did he fit back into society? And how, you know, so that was something that was, was really interested interest in me, the motives of the pilgrimage. And there are also the pilgrim burials and pilgrim souvenirs. I think they really kind of sparked my interest. Um, the souvenirs are tiny little metal badges and, and small little metal flasks that were purchased at different shrines across Europe. And we found them in a number of excavations in Ireland. Uh, and they're little individual items that were purchased by pilgrims, they were owned by pilgrims, they were worn by them. There's two little flasks from Dublin, they're called Amphila. One is from Muster and the other is from Canterbury. And they actually have the teeth marks of the pilgrims who owned them. So when the flasks were bought, they were filled with holy water. And then the top of the, the flask was, was it's called crimped, but they would just close it shut with their teeth. And to think, you know, you're 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 seeing something that somebody owned, that somebody bought, and um, you know, even their their teeth impressions there, it kind of connects you with the past. Well, the book is called Journeys of Faith: Stories of Pilgrimage from Medieval Ireland. The author, Dr. Louise Nugent. Thank you for joining us on the Leap of Faith tonight. Thank you very much, Michael. Finally, this evening, Hope, a docudrama about Knock Shrine made and directed in Ireland, was a winner at the International Gabriel Awards. Oh my goodness! What a vision! Why us? I, I just can't believe it. What do you think of me? It's a gift from God. Her Holy Mother has come to visit us. Let me see, let me see. We should say the rosary. The film was directed for the TV network EWTN by Campbell Miller from County Down, who joins me from his home this evening. Campbell, welcome to the programme. A lot of people may already know the story of Knock, but what drew you to this topic in particular? The topic of actually I suppose, telling the story of what actually happened in Knock in 1879, um, it had never been done before. Nobody had ever dramatised uh, the apparition. And when I went down and had some interviews with uh, Father Richard Gibbons and other team members there down in the shrine, I realized that there was a really a great story to be told because there was a second famine uh, in 1879 and not a lot of people realized that there was a famine. They've always heard of the Great Famine, which was 40 years earlier. So that was happening at that moment. Also, there was the creation of the Land League and Irish Catholic farmers were fighting back for uh, ownership of their own land. And all of that was happening when Our Lady St. Joseph St. John and the Lamb of God all appeared to the people. So they all appeared um, to give this message of hope uh, that things are going to get better in a period of time where there was much distress and fear. So I really thought that was a great story that just needed to be told. But it's interesting as well, listening to you as a programme maker, that you, you make it on the basis that the apparitions did happen. And at any point, I don't think you look at whether that was a possibility that it didn't. Well, we we did uh, in the documentary bring up the two investigations by the church. And the two investigations both came back, which were extensive investigations, to say that, yes, this did happen. It could not have uh, came of uh, magic lanterns or any of these conspiracy theories that are already talked about. And 
I uh, haven't read through those and also speak to a lot of the interviewees. It, it's not something that I even doubt um, because things did get better for the Irish people. It was a great message of hope and um, it, it is something that the Irish people actually needed um, back then. And for me, when you mentioned earlier there and asked, um, why do it? Well, I thought that message, I suppose, is needed now, today, more than ever. And when we were making this movie, there was no coronavirus or no COVID-19, so we, no lockdowns um, and what people are going through at the moment. So the Irish people, of course, today are, are um, you know, turning to, to God and turning to Our Lady for her intercession. And that's where I believe that the message is needed. Um, as much today as it was back then. What does come across is what is happening there now and indeed has happened since and what it does to bring people together. That's right, um, it, it is. And what we're noticing um, when talking to the people of now, more people are logging in, more people are watching the mass uh, the, from NUC. They have a lot more correspondence via lots of, you know, different methods through whether it's Twitter or Facebook or the, their website and um, YouTube and the webcam, which is great. So it actually is bringing the people together. They're, they've got viewership from all over Ireland, but that now has went further afield. And uh, this is something that is great because it's actually bringing the message of what happened to knock out to an international audience. And in the meantime, people can see uh, the docudrama Hope on Knock, which is on uh, the Amazon Prime Network and I presume other places as well. That's right. It uh, will be broadcast on EWTN as well uh, in August. And um, it's also available on EWTN.ie and, as you mentioned there, Amazon Prime. Campbell Miller, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Thank you very much, Michael. And that's our programme for this week. Next week, with the prospect of places of worship reopening from June 29th in Northern Ireland and around the same time for the rest of the country, we'll catch up with some of those people we spoke to back in March this year about the impact of the pandemic on them, particularly in terms of their diverse faiths. Join us next week then at the same time for the last programme in the current series. From our producer Sheila O'Callaghan, broadcast coordinator Jarlath Holland and me, Michael Cummins, good night. <laughs>